0: The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. When Scottish Highlanders arrived on the shores of the American colonies in the 1700s, the last thing they probably wanted to find was another brewing rebellion. But within two generations, it's exactly what they're going to face as the colonies around them go to war for their independence. The American Revolution is not a victory for everyone. And the Scottish Highlanders who took up arms for a king that had already thwarted their last rebellion in Scotland, will be dealt an early blow for their loyalty. Many Highlanders had in fact signed loyalty pledges to King George III when they immigrated to the colonies, a show of allegiance in exchange for the chance at a new start. But at Moore's Creek Bridge in the Cape Fear in early 1776, the Highlanders and their fellow loyalists are going to meet a clever band of patriots hungry for their first taste of victory hello and welcome to bergwin wright presents Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Bergwin Wright Presents, we've been exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander, the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon, and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time-travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie. Together, the Frasers land in the American colonies in North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. This week on the show, we're marking the finale of our Outlander season with a look to the future of Diana Gabaldon's story. In the just-concluded sixth season of the stars TV series, Claire and Jamie were brought to the edge of the American Revolution and left in precarious situations as the cloud of war looms. In the back half of Gabaldon's sixth book, A Breath of Snow and Ashes, the Frasers watch as the war begins, and Jamie finds himself on the front lines at Moores Creek Bridge, a swampy backwoods battle in the early morning hours of February twenty-seventh, 1776. The Battle of Moores Creek Bridge... Was a real skirmish between Loyalist forces heavily fronted by Scottish Highlanders and a group of local Patriots looking to stop their southern advance to the Cape Fear River and the Wilmington area. The Loyalist forces, led by Highlanders chanting King George and broad swords, charged into a trap set by the Patriots who had removed the boards of the bridge across the creek. It will be a quick and bloody battle. And when the dust settles, Highlanders will have borne the brunt of the losses, with about 50 dead and hundreds more captured as prisoners. But it won't just be a loss of life. It will also be a loss of tradition. Highlanders, long celebrated as up-close and personal warriors, had carried broadswords into battle, only to find that this was a gunfight marking the last time that the so-called Highland Charge was used in battle. So how did the Scottish brand of war translate to the American fight for freedom? And how did the events at Moores Creek forever change the history of North Carolina? Those are the questions we're going to answer today on the season finale of Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear Episode 10 King George and Broad Swords. To talk about the consequential battle of Moores Creek Bridge and the sacrifices made there by Scottish Highlanders, I'm joined today by Jason Howe, park historian and historic weapons supervisor for Moores Creek National Battlefield in Curry, North Carolina. Jason, thank you so much for being on the show thanks
1: for having me.
0: Well, before we start, I want to tell our listeners, especially those who have not read the Outlander books, that this conversation that we're going to have today is going to contain just a few spoilers from upcoming events that may very well factor into season seven of the Starz series. They come from the back half of Diana Gabaldon's sixth book, A Breath of Snow and Ashes. So just know that if you haven't read the book, You can skip ahead or come back after you have. Now, Jason, before we talk about the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, I was wondering if you could set the stage for our listeners because the American Revolution gets underway in 1775, but how do we get to Moores Creek here in the Cape Fear in that first year of the war? What's happening in this area that ultimately leads to battle?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, how much time do we got? (laughs) I'll I'll go to the super short version. So what has happened... Patriots have taken over North Carolina by 1775. When the royal governor returns, he has actually re- went to New York. Um, governor Martin went to New York because he's ill, and it isn't like today when you can go down to um, your local hospital and get treated. You sometimes have to leave and go to a different colony because they might have better uh, medical facilities. So he leaves, and when he comes back in 1775, the Patriots have taken over. Um, and he comes, basically comes back in and says, hey, guys, thanks for taking uh, you know, the time to make sure everything's going well in the colony, but I've got it from here, and, of course, the Patriots say, no, no, we've got it. You just kind of take a back seat, and, and at that point, Martin sees the writing on the wall. He fears for his life. He sends his family to New York, and he retreats to the mouth of the Cape Fear River, and he goes to an installation uh, called uh, Fort Johnson. Uh, At Fort Johnson, he's there. The Patriots were kind kind enough to send a letter. Um, The Patriots in Wilmington, they said, hey, Gov, uh, we plan on being there tomorrow morning. Uh, We're probably going to burn the fort, so you might not want to be there. At least they were kind enough to do that. Uh, So when Martin will get to the um, HMS cruiser, sure enough, the Patriots are burning the fort.
0: So after Governor Martin recognizes that war is at hand, what happens next? What do the British do?
1: So uh, Martin basically will write Parliament and say, hey, you know, um, I got a plan. There's a lot of people in the backcountry that don't like the Patriots. I'm not talking about the football team. These folks have had a run in with the Patriots in 1771 at the uh, Battle of Alamance. I know that might seem odd but Governor Tryon's army was basically led by the Sons of Liberty and the regulators had thought that the Sons of Liberty would come to their aid and they didn't. They sided with Governor Tryon. So Martin felt that he could raise these folks from the back country um, because he knew they had a tiff the uh, Patriots, and he had hoped to exploit that. Also, there's a large group of Highland Scots who had recently got here in the 1770s basically because of the regulator rebellion no one wanted to come to north carolina because of the regulator rebellion um so where do you send the people you really don't want you send them to the place you don't want to go so they there's a large influx of highland scots that will come in and and martin would hope to play off that he thought maybe he'd raise the army of between the regulators and the uh, highland scots who are coming in he thought maybe around ten thousand men raise an army here Head north, surround George Washington, put an end to this silly little rebellion before it gets started again.
0: But there's gonna be movement towards the Cape Fear, correct? So they're gonna start consolidating some of these troops or at least starting to move in this direction. Is that what brings people to Moore's Creek in February 1776?
1: So, you know, the, the Loyalists are ordered in mid-February to turn out in great numbers and make their way to the coast. The Patriots have split North Carolina up in the seven military districts. They have actually built a large military force here. Each district has a Minutemen company. I think a couple, one or two have actually two companies of Minutemen. There's two uh, companies that are battalions of Continentals. And so there, there's, there's large portions of troop all over all over the place for the patriots but the loyal the loyalists are kind of in hiding until governor martin sends word out when he sends word out they gather up in cross creek and they thought maybe possibly three to four thousand would actually show up and when it was all said and done only a small number and mainly highlanders the regulators had turned out in about three thousand men But they saw how well these patriots were organized, and they turned around and went home until Governor Martin could get here um, with the British Army. The British Army had not arrived yet, so the regulators will go home, leaving only the Highland Scots to form up and march their way to the coast to link up with the British and get all these guns that were promised.
0: And, And that's where your movement kind of sets you in the path of Moores Creek. Can you kind of give our listeners a bit of an idea of what the area around Moore's Creek is like, because it's not exactly friendly terrain. Um, even today, I mean, it's kind of out in the wilderness, and even then it's going to be even more inaccessible. So what were they kind of walking into, and what were these two forces converging on?
1: Sure. So the Patriots will actually get a couple of units here called uh, the called Minutemen, not militia. These Minutemen, about a thousand strong. There are a few militia in the ranks, um, but they'll get here to Moore's Creek Bridge, and Moore's Creek Bridge presents an opportunity for the, for the Patriots. The Patriots number around 1,000 men. The Loyalist forces number around somewhere around 1,600. Morris Creek Bridge offers an opportunity called, uh, in military terms, called the choke point. The bridge itself is a place where the Loyalists are going to have to cross. You've got a swampy area around Morris Creek Bridge, so it makes it the creek wider, really. And then Morse Creek itself is about 10 foot deep. A lot of people have this misconception or they think that it's only, you know, just a couple of feet deep and you can wade across it. No, there's a bridge here for a reason. I mean, you you know, and and the Loyalists are going to have to filter over that bridge because it's a deep, deep creek. And, and even before the Loyalists will get here, they camp six miles away the night before, and they camp between the bridge and a huge swamp. And they're stumbling through the swamp to even get here. So it's it's going to be a miserable march the night before the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge.
0: Well we've set the scene for people seeing these two forces converge on Moore's Creek. Now, before we get to the battle, uh, I want to kind of, again, remind our listeners, the reason we're talking about Moore's Creek Bridge is because it is featured pretty prominently in Diana Gabaldon's sixth book, as I mentioned at the beginning, A Breath of Snow and Ashes. And Jamie is actually going to fight there. And we're going to talk about the fact and the fiction of, of that in just a moment, but. If people have been watching the most recent sixth season of Outlander on Stars, they're going to recognize a name that was part of this battle. His name is Donald McDonald, and initially he is an ally of Jamie's. He's going to play a vital role in this battle. So what do we know about Donald McDonald and who he was to this colony and then to this battle?
1: So General um, McDonald, he's actually ordered to come down here in um, 1775, but he's actually sent here because he's a high-ranking Highland officer, and the hopes were to s- send a couple of high-ranking Highland officers down here to gather all these this large influx of Highland Scots. Promise them s- stuff like, "Hey, if you come fight for us, you know you c- you can wear uh, your kilts, uh, you can wear you can carry Highland weapons, stuff like that." So he his primary goal when he gets here, and and he comes into North Carolina, and he tells the port authorities here who are the Patriots at the time. He says, "Hey, you know, I would I don't want to be part of the British Army anymore." And the the Patriots actually let him into the colony, um, thinking that he's decided that he's just going to quit the British Army and come over and be uh, one of the sons of liberty. But he has an ulterior motive. He's here to to raise all these Highland Scots and to actually raise these. Uh, these regulators as well, and so yeah, he, his his he comes in with a, a hidden purpose, and that and that's to raise an army here.
0: And I think that's why we're seeing him even earlier than it sounds like he was truly in North Carolina on the show because he is. Talking to Jamie. He is courting the favor and the loyalty of a very prominent Scottish Highlander, at least in Diana Gabaldon's story, and his sway with other Scottish Highlanders that are either on Fraser's Ridge or throughout North Carolina. And so I think that's why we're seeing the involvement and the presence of Donald McDonald. Now, one thing I do want to hit on, though, is the involvement of Scottish Highlanders. You know, we've talked about Alamance on the show, we've talked about a few other battles. And there is this idea in the Outlander story that Scottish Highlanders were so central to these battles and I think for dramatic effect and and for narrative purposes Diana Gabaldon really centralizes Scottish Highlanders in the early years of the revolution and even before with Alamance. But it is true that Scottish Highlanders were the main components of this battle. If I'm not mistaken, there's like Sixteen hundred loyalists, I think, at this battle, and about fourteen hundred are highlanders. I think I remember seeing that at Moore's Creek. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Um, you're looking somewhere around fourteen hundred uh, highlanders, and and the other uh, two hundred or so are, are the are the regulators, the backwoodsmen. And and and, and to be honest, about three thousand men do assemble. Um, in Cross Creek, but when they uh, raise the flag in Cross Creek, 1,400 of them have to stay behind to defend the city. You, you raise the flag in the city, um, so you've got to stay behind, or, or the community, or town, rather. Uh, you got to defend that community. So 1,400 men will stay behind to defend the community, and so, and, and mainly, most of them are Highland Scots. A lot of these Scots have been intimidated into the ranks, they go around and the Highland officers um, will say, basically say, hey, you remember what happened at now yeah, We kind of got pushed around there and they stripped a lot of stuff from us. And hey, we're here in the colonies and we got a good deal and the British Army is on their way and we don't want to end up on the wrong side of things. Uh, you have the fact that some of these people were offered land, 200 acres of land. There's nothing to sneeze at. You also have the fact that these Highlanders, uh, what we know, there's a large portion of that group that will fight here that morning, are from Clan Campbell. And Clan Campbell, if you know anything about Scottish history, they are notorious to have sided with the Hanoverians, the King George line of kings. So you have that. Um, You also have the fact that a large portion of these Highlanders are new. They're what they would have considered immigrants. And if we're being honest, the local people here kind of frowned upon these immigrants, especially these Highland Scots. Um, so they, won't, they were not treated very kindly when they got here by these people who are going to be the patriots. Um, so there, there's various different factors of why you're going to have a large concentration of Highland Scots to come out and actually help the, um, the British. Um, we could go into several more, but I don't know if we got time.
0: Well, it seems like there was, they recognized opportunity. in in this moment. They were being given opportunity in this moment. And as we get closer to the battle, it's the area, it's the bridge that the Patriots see opportunity in, a a way to kind of set a trap. So what do we know about the start of this battle? Because it happens in the early morning hours of February 27th, 1776.
1: It's going to start really, um, it really starts the night before a loyalist Will um, come into the patriot encampment. Now the patriots have whether they deceived the loyalists or not. More than likely they did. But Caswell, the commander here, he doesn't give um, he doesn't give a detailed detailed account of what his thoughts patterns were. But the patriots the night before will camp on the west bank of Moore's Creek, which is the exact same side the loyalists are on. Now this is this is a problem because. They've camped on the West Bank, the same side as the Loyalists. So their back is now to the water. If the if the Loyalists can somehow get down here and cut off the bridge access to the Patriots, they've captured them. So the Loyalist courier will come in here and deliver a letter to Caswell for him to surrender that night. And Of course, Caswell says no, but the courier sees this and he returns, returns back to the um, Loyalist encampment. And he says, hey, you know, they're camped on the West Bank it's probably not a good idea for them to be over there. Um, so the loyalists will take that information, devise a plan, move on on the Patriot position. Starting at about 1 a.m. on the 27th, they begin marching about six miles through really thick swamp. And when they get down here, they actually send a group of men to the bridge, hoping to cut off the bridge access. And they start creeping up on the, where the camp was. They still see campfires. And when they get into the encampment, they actually still see tents and and supplies strewn around. And this makes them feel as though that the Patriots were fast retreating from the area. But the Patriots had actually moved back across the bridge that night. And we don't know exactly how they were tipped off or if they knew that they were actually coming. We believe that the uh, Duplin County Sheriff actually tipped the Patriots off. Um, because he will go to court after the um, this battle, and he gets in trouble for being what we call a go-between. He would go to the loyalists, and he say, Hey, guys, I know where the Patriots are. How much money you got? Then he would go over to the Patriots and say, Hey, guys, I know where the loyalists are. How much money you got? So more than likely, it was the sheriff, the Dublin County sheriff, would tip them off and the Patriots fall back on the, um, on the East Bank into the earthworks. But the Loyalists have no idea that those earthworks are there because the Loyalist courier only entered the camp on the West Bank the night before. Um, by the time he got here on the um, 26th, it was dark. So he's in a dark encampment on the West Bank, and he has no way of knowing what's going on on the East Bank. So...
0: It's a uh, it's an interesting way to kind of set the stage for the battle because when when they do meet up the next morning the Patriots have have set a trap they've they've really kind of booby trapped if you will this uh, this bridge to make it hard to cross and it really puts the loyalists and you know especially led by the Scottish Highlanders at a disadvantage as you know battle gets underway. Sure.
1: Yeah. Um. You know, Morse Creek was designed for military study and became a really became a part because of what happens here. What, what you have at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge with these Loyalists advancing on the bridge and that night and the Patriots um, scoot over to the East Bank. Now, when the Loyalists get here and they get to the bridge, those that were sent to the bridge, they see Patriot sentries on the other side and they fire on those sentries. And those sentries, those guards, they don't fire back. They just run off in darkness. And so now they're running back into the um, fortifications on the East Bank. It's still dark. There's no way the Loyalists can see up the causeway. And so all they saw was these Patriot sentries running up the causeway into the darkness. So now they feel that these Patriot forces are fast retreating from the area. So this would entice them to cross over the bridge and run up and try to capture. Maybe they shot a couple of those sentries that were there and maybe they're kind of lagging behind. So the Patriots have just set up your classic ambush situation. You've set up your guards' they kind of are there and they get fired upon and they run off into the darkness into an unseen area and not knowing to the loyalists, you got about a thousand Patriots. They have anywhere from two to five artillery pieces and they're, and they're ready to open fire. And and so that's and the, of course, the, the loyalists will advance up that causeway, maybe getting about 50 across, maybe a little bit more. And they run right into the teeth of the Patriot defenses, muskets, cannons, Um, We'll open fire and cut them down very quickly,
0: and it is a quick battle. It only was about fifteen minutes or around there, wasn't it?
1: You know, uh, you know. There's various reports out there. Um, You know, if you watch the park film, it it says three minutes. Uh, Now, where do we get all these different various reports? These men, we get them from the Patriots a lot. These men were twenty years old when they fought the battle. Sixty years later, they're eighty and they're filling out pension records. And they start writing a narrative, and some of them will say basically, hey, we whooped those Tories pretty good. Probably only took about three minutes. So you get a lot of that, uh, the short, quick battle. But the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge, the best we can tell, probably lasted about 40 minutes. It's still really quick, but the Loyalists will attempt to take this bridge four times. They will, they will um, get shot down initially, fall back on the bridge, regroup, try to come over the bridge, fall back on the bridge, regroup, try to come over the bridge. They do this four times. And, and, and the loyalist account that we have, the two loyalist accounts we have, suggest that the battle lasts somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes. Some of the Patriot accounts that we have actually suggest that it lasts that long. Um, so given the, what we know the loyalists attempted to do, it's probably more the 40-minute range, but still very quick battle.
0: Now, there is a reason, again, that we're talking about this, because in the Outlander book series, Jamie does fight at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, and he actually fights on the Patriot side against Scottish Highlanders and Donald MacDonald. Do we know of any actual figures, any Scottish Highlanders in real life that would have fought for the Patriots' side? Do we know of any real kind of proxy for Jamie Fraser?
1: Sure. Um... You know, if you if you look through, if you dig through the roster of the Patriots, you'll find all kinds of Highland names in, in that roster. And, and it's not a complete roster either, but th- there's a lot of Highlanders that will show up fighting on the side of the, uh, the Patriots. I will throw one interesting caveat out there to you, though. If you actually thumb through the Loyalist uh, participants in the battle, what few we know that we have, there's actually a James Fraser on the Loyalist side. Really? Yes. Uh, very, it's very interesting. Not, not a whole lot is known. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of information, but we do know that the Loyalist actually had a James Frazier.
0: Well, that's fascinating. So, you know, he might not have been on the side that Outlanders Jamie Frazier was on, but there was a James Fraser at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge. Oh, yes. Well, the other factor of this that is very Scottish in nature is how... Scottish Highlanders on the Loyalist side fought in this battle. There is a lot made now and and a lot known about how they charged into battle. They brought broadswords. And so I was curious if you could talk a bit about that being a weapons specialist, what it means to charge into a battle, specifically a battle where there's muskets and cannon fire and all this stuff, to charge in with this very signature Highland charge, as they called it, with swords.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I get a lot of people when they come in through the door and they look and they see the um, two figures we have, the, the loyalists with a sword, the Patriots with a musket and they're like, Oh, they brought a knife to a gunfight. Um, warfare is a little different than, um, what we fight today. You know, you, you load these muskets and then 17 seconds later, you, you, you've loaded it again and you're ready to fire. So, I mean, that's a, that's a long distance. These muskets are only accurate maybe up to 60 yards maybe a little further um, depending on the various different accounts that you'll find out there so you fire you miss those the people in front of you are going to be on top of you with a sword before you can get reloaded you know i tell people you know you give me a nice open battlefield there's nothing in between us you have 100 people i have 100 people i'll give you the muskets and i'll take the swords any day and, and these highlanders are you know feared with this weapon it's a large weapon it was designed about 300 years prior to this battle. It was meant to cut through armor, um, very sharp, has a blade on either side. Uh, you know, it's, it's a heavy weapon. And, it, and, and these Highland Scots are, 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 are big people. They're tall. Um, they're big, broad-shouldered men who can wield this weapon well. So the Highlanders and the Highland Scots, they're they're feared. Um, The British had would use these Highland Scots really as shock troops throughout the wars that they fought prior to the American Revolution and even in the American Revolution, because you know these guys have a a notoriety as to being these very fierce soldiers with these huge swords. So they would charge up that causeway that night with the swords, thinking and really not even knowing that the Patriots are there, and it's really not the muskets that are going to keep these Highlanders from taking the earthworks is going to be the artillery. The the Loyalists will note that. They can't take the bridge because of the artillery. But what's interesting about this charge, of course, the, the Loyalists will get cut down because they have swords and they're going against artillery and they're going against muskets. But this is the last ever Highland broadsword charge anywhere in the world. This is the last time this uh, weapon will ever be used in a mass charge, and it occurred right here, 23 miles above Wilmington, North Carolina, very early on in the American Revolution.
0: Why was it the last time? If it, you know, if it was still such an intimidating form of of battle, why was this the last place?
1: You know, and and, and I don't have a a definitive answer on that. I don't know if anybody ever has has come up as to reason why. I can only speculate. And my, my speculation is warfare is changing. Uh, like I said, this is a 300-year-old weapon by this point. It's large. It's meant for when, you know, battles were still really kind of this big brawl. You went out there and you just fought hand-to-hand and, and um, you know, it, it was meant for a different time. By now, on an 18th century battlefield, and even prior to the American American Revolution, this is happening. But you're starting to see more and more field artillery on a battlefield, and field artillery is a dangerous thing. And of course, like I said, this that's what wins the Battle of Moore's Creek Bridge, and, and and you put this big cannons, you get these big cannons out there, and they're not shooting these solid cannonballs. They're actually shooting rounds that make these cannons like giant shotguns uh, just a bunch of smaller pellets coming out the end of these things and they're cutting down large swaths of men so if you're coming at um, somebody with broadswords and you got an open field at three four hundred yards they're going to start opening up on you with um, what they call anti-personnel rounds, you know these, or what we would call anti-personnel rounds, you know, and, and they start act, and these cannons start acting like shotguns, and they're just mowing down people. So to charge into enemy positions by this point, if you don't have a, a short line of attack, you're probably going to get cut down, and there's no use of a broad, really no use for a broadsword by this point.
0: Now, I, I want to kind of start closing on our conversation by talking a bit about what happens next. So after the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, it's going to be an interesting time here in North Carolina because the Patriots are going to really use the momentum that they get from this early victory at Moores Creek. And start to look to the future. North Carolina will become the first colony to officially declare its independence from Britain with something called the Halifax Resolves, which is done uh, on April twelfth, seventeen seventy six. So, less than two months after this battle, what do we know in those weeks after Moore's Creek? What happens here in North Carolina, and specifically, do we know what happens with the Scottish Highlanders who suffered the most losses at Moore's Creek?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. You know, um, so. This battle is very important um, to our our independence because if we think about what's going on at the Continental Congress, the Continental Congress is discussing things, and a lot of people are saying, hey, well, you know, maybe we should work out things with Great Britain. All in the colonies are saying, hey, we're all going to, if we do decide to um, leave the crown, we all got to do it. Um, And there's some pushback, uh, particularly within your southern colonies. But when the royal governor um, actually calls on an army here to come and invade North Carolina and the patriots stand up to not only these loyalists, they defeat the loyalists. And when they do that, um, when the British army actually gets here, um, they get here and, and the loyalists are not at the coast and there's no one to arm. They, of course, will head south and they fight a battle down in South Carolina called the Battle of Fort Moultrie and in the first British invasion of the south. Now, when this happens, particularly um, here in North Carolina, when they have prevented the invasion here and they know that the, the royal governor has sent troops, they decide, hey, on April 12th, we're going to allow our delegates to vote for independence. North Carolina is the first colony to give their, the authority to their delegates to, to vote for independence. And North Carolina wanted their independence because of what the royal governor had tried to do here at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge.
0: And so, yeah, it, it's really a spark of independence here in North Carolina. And do we know what happens to the Scottish Highlanders? I mean, again, they've suffered so much at this battle and they, they took the most losses. Do they continue fighting in the war in what comes next? Yeah,
1: sure. You know, there, there's various answers to that question. 350 men. Um, actually make a big looping sweep around the Patriots and make their way to the coast. And they link up with the British forces when they get here. I mean, 350 men's um, not enough to take the colony. So, of course, you know, there's nothing to push inland with. But they do take those 350 men and they leave. You have 850 that are captured after the battle. The officers are imprisoned. Even, and they actually are imprisoned up in Halifax, North Carolina, where they signed the Halifax Resolves. But after the battle, some of these Highlanders are going to hide out in the swamps to get away from the Patriots. And they don't show back up until the British show back up in 1781. You do have um, some Highlanders who are going to change sides. A young Highlander that fought here at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, a Hugh McDonald. Hugh will actually switch sides and join the Patriots um, and join the 6th North Carolina. And that happened quite often. You do have a lot of these Highlanders that are going to just lose their land and have to leave. And they lose it to the Patriots. They have to leave and, and they leave North Carolina. Some of them going to, even going back to Scotland. So, yeah, you know, it, it, there's various different things that will happen to the these Highlanders that fought here.
0: Throughout this season of the podcast, we've been talking about all the, the hardships that Scottish Highlanders have faced, and this is just another one of them. I mean, they were taking up arms to to better their lives. They were being given the opportunity to fight for the king, but it did not work out for them. We have talked about the current modern day Scottish heritage in North Carolina, and it's thriving. You know, it didn't end at Moores Creek, but it is certainly one of the, the darker chapters for North Carolina Scots, and it was so early in the war.
1: You know, the the Highland Scott community went Splitsville when this whole thing started. You know, half of them sided with the Loyalists, half of them sided with the, the Patriots, So particularly the, the ones who are going to side with the Patriots are the ones who had lived here longer. Um, but, you know, the whole community just goes Splitsville. So you still have a strong Scottish presence here because a lot of these Highland Scots were Patriots and you'll see it everywhere you go here in North Carolina.
0: Now, do you all get uh, a good amount of interest from Outlander at Moores Creek? It has not made it to the show yet, and hopefully it will, but it is in the books. Have, have you been able to court some interest from Outlander fans, again, as we've been talking about this whole season, looking to walk in the footsteps of Jamie and Claire or real Scottish Highlanders? Oh, yeah. I
1: mean, uh, we get a lot of Outlander fans here. So, you know, uh, the Outlander series is bringing folks out here to this this little battle.
0: And and you all talk about the role of Scottish Highlanders because they were so central to this battle. So you have uh, a Scottish story to tell at Morris Creek.
1: Sure, we do. Um, you know, uh, it was the other side of things. Um, most of your Loyalists are Highland Scots. We even have a monument, a Loyalist monument dedicated to the Highlanders. So we do not only do we talk about the Ballamore's Creek Bridge, the importance of it, the the, what the Patriots are all about. But we we talk about what the the Highland Scots are all about, you know, why they got here or why they're here, why they're fighting for the crown, what kind of weapons they're using, what kind of traditions they're bringing over with them. And, and we actually sometimes we actually have every other year or every two or three years, we will have a Highland Scott day and we'll um, uh, do something as far as like just something dedicated, a program dedicated just to the Highlanders.
0: I was excited to end this season with you because if I'm not mistaken, you're a fan of Outlander too, or at least the ability that you have at Morse Creek to talk about Scottish Highlanders, right?
1: Ah yes, Uh, you know I didn't get into Outlander much, and uh, I didn't read the books. Uh, I'm kind of boring. I I like reading actual history books, but I got into the TV show, and so much so that uh, my wife's a huge fan, much a bigger fan than I. And we have a three-year-old son, and my wife um, named our son Alexander Malcolm after James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser of course. And so, yeah, you know, I, I like it. I like the show. We do talk. We, act, we actually have in the visitor center, we have an Outlander quote on one of our exhibits. So, yeah, I mean, we we, we talk about Outlander quite a bit here. And, you know, it, I tell people, you know, it's, it's not real. This, you know, the story is not real. Uh, it's fictional history, but it brings folks here. Um, people want to know about the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge because the Outlander What actually happened here? So, you know, we get the Outlander folks, they they read the books, they have a a certain image in their mind of what happened here, and that brings them here, and and then they get the full picture and the, you know, the actual picture of what happened here and how the battle itself unfolded.
0: Absolutely. That's the whole reason we've done this season of the podcast, because it's the fiction that brings people uh, in contact with the facts. And so uh, I would encourage everyone to go visit Moores Creek National Battlefield. Jason is correct. They have some beautiful monuments out there, one of which speaks directly to the sacrifices and the losses of the Scottish Highlanders at Moores Creek. Uh, It's a beautiful site. It's open every day of the year. They're open in the visitor center Tuesday through Saturday, but you can go walk Moores Creek every day. I went and did it the other day to kind of commune with this site before we talked about it on the show. It's absolutely lovely. And so as we've said all season, beginning at Brunswick Town in our first episode, if you want to walk in the footsteps of real Scottish Highlanders, not just the fictional footsteps of jamie and claire frazier uh morse creek is one of those places to do it jason thank you so much for joining us on the show and for all that you do for this story at Moores creek
1: thank you hunter for having us on and we, we it was really exciting we're glad we were able to do it
0: thank you so much for listening to this episode and this season of bergwin wright presents Outlander and the Cape Fear. While we are at the end of our first season, I want to send a special thank you to all of our insightful guests who have helped us bridge the incredible facts and fiction of Outlander this season. I also hope that you've enjoyed this look at history through a popular culture lens, and we especially hope that you'll join us next season when we tackle a new topic that further charts the riveting history of the Cape Fear region. Until we return with Season 2, Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on all your podcast platforms so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review or rate us so that other people can find the show. You can also visit us at the Bergwin Wright House in Wilmington. Monday through Saturday, we give tours of the site that will expose you to a fascinating chapter in North Carolina and colonial history. If you can't make it to the site, you can follow the Bergwin-Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Bergwin-Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider donating to our mission to further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site, by donating at the link in each episode's description or on our website at bergwinwrighthousecom donate and the number one. Thank you so much for your support. This podcast was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their support. See you next season on Bergwin Wright Presents. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Bergwin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182.